AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Stan, I understand you have the story today about attackers going after the DVRs again. Another day, another DVR botnet. Uh, I guess another DVR DDoS botnet. So um, uh, basically, uh, uh, NetLab 360, a Chinese security company, uh, in their blog, they're reporting something interesting. So they're mentioned that there's a specific manufacturer of video recorders. Uh, I think it's called Lilin. And uh, in the past few months, they've observed three separate uh, botnets, uh, Chalubo, FBot, and MuBot, uh, all taking advantage of uh, three zero days that they've discovered um, within uh, those uh, DVRs. Um, and uh, important to note here uh, is that uh, the researchers at the security company, uh, they did reach out to the equipment manufacturer um, earlier in the year. And you know, within a month, the vendor did fix uh, the problem and issued a patch uh, or a firmware up update. So if you do have this uh, Lillian video recorder in your environment, it will be, now will be a good time to go make sure that your firmware um, is up to date. Um, so uh, the fun part, what are these vulnerabilities? So um, one of the vulnerabilities is actually kind of, uh, I guess, kind of sad because it's uh, hard-coded credentials that exist in the firmware. One is for a root account, and the other is for um, some other account called report. Um, and using these uh, basically backdoor credentials or hard-coded credentials, you can get into the system. Um, you can modify some configuration files. And this is where the second and kind of third vulnerability are, is that when you modify those configuration files, there's a job that runs periodically, either the FTP service or the NTP service. Each one of those is considered a separate zero day. And they'll pick up this uh, malicious config file you've created um, and basically execute the commands that are in there. Um, so uh, there's also some stuff on the, on the web front end where you can also inject commands. So this combination of um, command execution uh, remote with pre and post authentication, I guess, I guess hard-coded credentials. I don't know if you would call that you need authentication. Technically, you need authentication. You just need to know the password. Uh, and if you do, uh, you can unfortunately take advantage of it. Uh, now, these botnets or these, uh, these malware families, um, uh, what do they do? Uh, what's their kind of like actions on objectives? Um, they've previously been reported, both Chalubo, FBOT, and MUBOT as ZDOS, botnets, uh, but they also have other capabilities. Um, they can communicate via um, uh, like SOX proxy or Tor, um, things like that to uh, make it a little bit more complicated to catch them. So um, I think it's very unfortunate that there's another one of these threats out there that's being distributed. Um, but luckily, uh, the, the researchers were able to work with the vendor. And I, I would say, unlike other times, where um, we've heard, you know, what, that vendors don't do patches, especially for these uh, vulnerabilities. It seems like this time they did, which is which is a positive thing. Um, so if you have this Lillian video recorder, definitely, um, you know, check out the firmware update and make sure you apply it so you're no longer vulnerable. Yeah, it's nice that they've patched this quickly, but do we know how they've communicated this out to users? 
That's a very good question. And I think uh, this is a, another tough thing that I think many software vendors, big and small, have battled for many years. It's not enough to have the patch. It's not even enough to put it in an RSS feed or in a web blog that you have it. How do you get the users to come to you and um, apply the patch? So I think um, you know that's why I think a lot of new software packages out there these days, they kind of do the auto-check. And they, um, I, I feel like uh, web browsers do this a lot now, especially, you know, they'll check the update and they won't even like ask you, hey, do you want this or not? They'll kind of install the update, most recent version of the, uh, of the software. So I don't think that that's the case for these video recorders, unfortunately, but uh, although I'm not sure, but hopefully uh, I think more of these devices will kind of start moving to that model, uh, just like we've seen in operating systems and just like we've seen with web browsers. Uh, if it's something that gets used all the time, perhaps it's better for it to check for an update and apply it automatically, even without, um, you know, too much user intervention. Um, it, again, depends on the use case, obviously. Can you just have the device reboot willy-nilly? Um, but it's definitely having the device kind of check in is probably better than necessarily, you know, asking the user. I know my thermostat does that. It'll tell me when there's an update. So when I want to adjust the temperature, I know it's not for an update. And I have the choice uh, to, to, to apply the update. With these devices, not sure if they auto-update or not, do you know if the vendors supplied instructions and how to with these? Because, I mean, some people may find updating firmware difficult. Yeah, I, I suspect like most devices that you buy that are like small home office devices, they probably don't come with a lot of great support. You know, I suspect it's very similar to like your router where you can update the firmware on your router, but let's be honest, how many people know to do that or where to even go for the firmware updates? Um, and I suspect this is very similar, unfortunately. Um, hopefully over the next five to 10 years or hopefully sooner, you know, this industry that does the, the small devices like this, small office, home office devices or DVRs, they'll kind of go through the same renaissance that regular software vendors had to go, you know, even looking back through like the early 90s, where now they realize they have to make things simpler for the end user because the end user is just trying to do their thing. They don't have time to be an IT administrator. They just want things to work. So uh, while it might not be a perfect today, I am hopeful that you know, within the next few years, um, some of these vendors really pick up on that uh, to make the internet a really a better place for us all. So Jim, you got information on the brand new Microsoft Zero Day. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, this one came out on Monday and it's a new vulnerability in the Adobe Type Manager library or on Windows systems for parsing Type 1 PostScript fonts. So Microsoft's advisory that came out on Monday um, pointed out that this vulnerability actually exists clear back into Windows 7. And unfortunately, Windows 7 is not getting new patches since January, I guess. 
And the vulnerability was in a component called atmfd.dll. This was a kernel mode DLL that did the font parsing. Now, fortunately, in Windows 10 1809, so the September release two years ago, they did away with this DLL and they moved this parsing capability out of the kernel and into user mode. So they moved it out of kernel mode and into user mode. This is good. That means in more recent versions of Windows 10, the supported versions, uh, this is a little less serious. Any remote code that they are able to get executed isn't running in kernel mode. It's running in user mode in a sandbox. So it greatly limits what the malicious code can do. But it does still exist in current versions of Windows. It isn't patched yet. I expect that they'll probably patch it in the normal release cycle in April because in the supported versions of Windows, it isn't, uh, it isn't as serious. It's the user mode, not the kernel mode. So. Um, but basically, the way that this exploit works is the attacker will try to get the user to open a document that contains these malicious fonts. And if, they, if the attacker can get a user to do that, then the Microsoft Word or Outlook or whatever will open the document try to parse these fonts, hit the vulnerability, the vulnerability will be executed, and their malicious code will get executed, so. Interesting, Jim. Now, some of the things that I came across with this was uh, some of the mitigation factors. Uh, if you could run a group policy object to uh, prevent preview pains from uh, initiating with the uh, documents that may contain this exploit. Uh, I think there's uh, another one about actually identifying that DLL and renaming it. Um, I, I have talked with um, other uh, peers about different ways to mitigate around this to kind of limp through this zero day until we get to the standard Microsoft Tuesday, which I thought was uh, a very, very good idea. So this is this is really interesting that they came out with this um, announcement. They're producing the the mitigating uh, things, and then as you said, probably won't produce anything until our standard patch Tuesday. Um, I personally haven't heard of uh, any out of bands or rumors of out of bands as well. So. Yeah, that's right. The advisory does mention a couple of mitigations. One of them is on the older versions of Windows 10 or Windows 7 and Windows 8, you can rename that DLL, the atmfd.dll. You rename that, it doesn't get loaded into the kernel, and 
then you're not vulnerable to the exploit. Uh, one of the other uh, mitigations that they recommend is disabling the preview pane in Microsoft Outlook, for example. Uh, this will keep the fonts from being loaded by Outlook. Um, it's not clear to me whether Edge or Internet Explorer is vulnerable to this. Uh, so I'm, and the advisory really doesn't go into detail on that. Um, the, the one other mitigation that they mention is disabling the web client service. And I'm not exactly sure how that protects, but that is one of the mitigations that they mentioned. Yeah, I was curious uh, if it would be possible to load up like a font for maybe some CSS when you go to a website and maybe, you know, this could be used in uh, drive-by exploit or anything like that. I'm not super familiar with the vulnerability, but I was just curious, um, have you seen or heard anything like that? Yeah, it's, as I said earlier, it's not clear to me how or if Edge or Internet Explorer is impacted by this. So I'm not going to say that it's not possible. I, I, I really don't know. It isn't mentioned in the advisory, which makes me think maybe not. But it's something we're going to have to keep our eye on. Definitely an interesting vulnerability. I know uh, this, I think, is used to parse some sort of Adobe fonts. Uh, so we thought that uh, having Flash be gone uh, would kind of solve all of our Adobe problems. <laughs> but it looks like uh, even years later, uh, the fonts uh, can get us. Yeah, why fonts need to be executable is beyond me. Uh, but and, and this isn't the first time. There was the GDI exploit must be 15 years ago or so. Um, yeah, this isn't the first time. It's probably not the last. Yeah, I guess the video libraries and things like that could get a little uh, tricky implementation-wise because I think a lot of them, um, they try to like conserve space and everything is like a bitwise operation to cram all the calculations in as much as possible. So I think what happens is it's really easy to make like a, a small off by one error or a little buffer overflow, um, which I think ultimately causes um, some of these issues. Um, but I'm glad, uh, you know, uh, companies like Microsoft are taking it seriously and, um, you know, figuring out that these vulnerabilities exist and issuing the patches. And of course, it sounds like we have some mitigations as well uh, in order to, um, uh, you know, w while we're waiting for the patch to arrive. So that's, that's nice to know as well. Yeah. And I have to give Microsoft credit. They did move this font parsing out of the kernel about a year and a half ago, great move. They moved it into this um, font driver font driver host process, um, which is a great move. They moved it into user mode to reduce the stuff that's executing in kernel mode. 
Great move. Um, this just hit Twitter on Monday. It's getting a lot of attention. So, and I, as I said, I expect Microsoft will patch it in good time in their normal patch cycle in another two weeks or so. So, yeah. Yeah, I think accidentally triggered vulnerabilities always give people. Uh, something to be a little bit more excited about, especially ones where you don't have to click yes to anything. It kind of just happens by accident. So, hey, Tony, I hear you have a very interesting list of books for us to read while we're all kind of locked down and have a little bit more free time. See, recently, all of us have been spending a considerable amount of time at home. And as I was prepping for today's threat track, I was reading... Uh, some articles, and I came across one on dark reading that I thought would be perfect. So it's called Eight InfoSec Page Turners for Days Spent Indoors. And what I'm going to do is uh, kind of give a paraphrase or a Cliff Notes version of each summary with the eight different books that are sitting in this article. That way I don't have to just like repeat the whole summary, just a couple quick snippets. And, you know, maybe some will pique your interest. A couple of them that, that I read the summaries for uh, really sparked my interest. Uh, I'm going to pick those up. Um, so, you know, without further ado, uh, we'll start with the first one. Uh, it's called Sandworm, uh, a new era of cyber war and the hunt for Kremlin's most dangerous hackers. It's a nice, big, long title. But basically, this book is going to cover uh, what the writer believes to be the people behind NotPetya, in addition to some of the attacks between 2014 and 2017 uh, against uh, electrical grids, infrastructures across uh, America, Eastern Europe, and uh, NATO. So uh, that one uh, sounds very interesting to me because there's not a lot about the background with that particular um, group that um, I know about. So um, the next one that I want to go into is called Security Yearbook 2020. Uh, this one details out various cybersecurity industry uh, groups, uh, and it also gives a directory of those various groups, and it's in alphabetical and uh, country. So you can actually use it kind of like the old school yellow pages. Um, so that one that one sounds very interesting to kind of get that, that historical uh, edge as well as what's, what's current today. For number three on this list, it's called Countdown to Zero Day. Now, this one details um, about the planning, the execution, and the different facets of Stuxnet and what it was used for when it first came out. Now, you know, if you're not familiar with Stuxnet, this is one of the first pieces of malware that really was designed to produce damage, physical damage. So if you don't know a lot about Stuxnet, I highly suggest picking that one up. Uh, the next one, number four on the list, is called Cult of the Dead Cow. That caught my attention. And it's how the original hacking supergroups might have saved the world. So that's the whole title. Now, this one traces uh, the group that was basically kind of part of the creation of hacktivism. 
and it also details some of its uh, famous members. So uh, with that one in particular, I think I'm going to definitely pick that one up as well. Uh, number five on the list is called The Fifth Domain. Now, this one covers uh, the fifth domain when you're dealing with land, air, sea, space, and the fifth domain being cyberspace. And uh, the, the term fifth domain in this, um, this conversation or this topic was actually coined by the Pentagon. Uh, number six is called Exploding Data. Uh, now, this book details uh, people's personal data, um, how it's being used today, and basically about us as uh, Internet citizens and what to do about this, like, expansion in personal data across the internet. And number seven by Bruce Snyder is called We Have Root. Now, this book is a new grouping of a bunch of Bruce's essays dealing with various facets of, of technology. And now number eight, which I'm definitely going to pick this one up because it's social engineering, the science of the human of human hacking. Now, the reason why I'm going to pick this up is this is the second edition of Chris Hadmaggy's first book, which I currently own, called The Art of Human Hacking. Now, this one is basically an expansion of how he described how to hack a human being through social engineering. And uh, since the first one was uh, written 10 years ago, uh, a lot has evolved since then. So uh, those are, those are the, the eight books listed in that article that was found on dark reading. And I, since we're going to be at home, you might as well, you know, grab a book and, and um, check these things out. Cause I think that some of it's really interesting. So now Stan and Jim, I want to ask you, do you guys have a personal favorite book that you wanted to cover? I've got one myself, not one that I showed, but I've got another one, but I want to get your ideas. One of my favorite books is Security Engineering here uh, by Roth Anderson. And this was a book I used in college to learn about uh, computer security. It actually caught my attention because um, it describes a lot of use cases where people try to build um, secure technologies or just build security into a system design, um, and they failed and something went wrong. And uh, this book is very well written. And it explains what went wrong and actually explained like how it should have been done more correctly. Um, it really expanded my way of thinking um, in terms of, in general, just any system design, how to create systems, how to design them, how to think about security, but also helped me to think about how to hack and uh, what kind of assumptions people make uh, in order to figure out where maybe some vulnerabilities are in the system. So it helped me both from designing things more securely um, and uh, penetration testing and things like that. It's definitely a book um, I recommend, and it helped me a great deal when I was starting out. That's very cool. That's very cool. Jim, do, do you have a book in particular? Or? Yeah, actually, I do. The one that I would include on the list is, I can't speak the whole name of it, but it's POC or GTFO. I came out a couple of years ago, and it's a collection of proof of concept for exploits. And it's a really great way 
to get into the head of the attackers, to understand how, you know, as someone who's primarily a defender, um, this is an opportunity to see how the exploit developers think. And so, yeah, really good book that I highly recommend. It's definitely not for the faint of heart because it can get into really uh, specific POCs, the proof of concept for how to exploit things that you didn't think were possible. But the digital, the most beautiful thing about that book in its digital form is that it's actually a bunch of different journals that got released from uh, different volumes. And each volume is a PDF that's also some other type of file. Like it could have, it, it's a picture and a PDF and maybe an EXE that showcases some sort of a POC. Um, it, it's really wonderful if you're into that sort of thing. So that's uh, a great choice. Very cool. And now, now it's my turn. Um, this one doesn't really teach you about cybersecurity, but I thought this one was really good. It's called Ghost in the Wire. And it's by Kevin Mitnick. So it actually outlines his his whole life story up till the year that he wrote this book. But it it even starts off with his bus trips when when he was a kid and how he learned how to circumvent paying for bus rides when when he was a kid. So it's it, it's a really interesting. It's a fun fun book. I thought. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I'm going to pull that one up again and go through the social engineering book and, you know, just enjoy my time. Excellent. And I know I'll pick up a few of those page turners myself. Uh, the ones that caught my attention was the, the Stuxnet one and the NotPetya, because I think I, I've read just newspaper articles about them, and it, it's fascinating. So a book on it could probably illuminate even more information and detail. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess of those eight, the one that really got my attention most is the one about not Petya, because I remember spending 40 hours in Ida looking at it myself when it occurred a couple of years ago. So that one is one that I will definitely look into. Yeah, that one is that one sandworm. Uh, the ones that I think I'm going to pick up, um, I am interested in the uh, Countdown to Zero Day, which is the Stuxnet. Uh, Cult of the Dead Cow. I think I'll probably pick that one up as well. And then obviously uh, I'll ask you guys how Sandworm is and uh, maybe that'll be the trifecta. So. <laughs> well, it seems like we all picked that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting, especially with, with the work that our our group does. So, Yeah, and I'm old enough to remember Cult of the Dead Cow. But anyway, thanks, Tony. Hello, guys, and welcome to this week's edition of the Internet Weather. So first up, we have the top 10 most broke ports. As you know, we measure the traffic volume uh, um, in terms of scanning activity on the Internet. And one of the ways we do that is by looking at the different ports uh, that are getting scanned by other people out there, uh, just to understand what kind of um, things are happening on the Internet that are uh, up and popping. And this week's top 10, um, are actually pretty much the same top 10 
that we see um, every week. Uh, the top 10 most pro ports is generally by volume. But the one port I always highlight um, every time I'm on is port 445 TCP. And today I even have a little special story uh, of something that I discovered. So checking our activity on port 445 TCP, uh, you guys know that every time I'm on, I kind of like to look at the last 900 days of activity on this port. And so here for April 23rd, uh, what we see is, uh, oh, I guess April 23rd of 2019 is when I first started doing that. Uh, so that was almost uh, almost a year ago now. Um, I kind of started uh, preparing these slides. And back then what we noticed is that there were a lot of IP addresses scanning uh, the internet. But uh, going back to 2017, there were only 10,000. Um, and over time, uh, this thing came out called WannaCry. It was using the Eternal Blue exploit, and lots of devices became infected. So if you look at this chart, you'll see there was lots of activity happening You know, from, um, I guess, around May of 2017 all the way through like August or uh, June of 2018. And then uh, the activity started trending down. Today, at the end, when I show you all of the slides, I actually have a little bit of a story that's going to take us back uh, to what was maybe happening um, a while ago that is still happening. Um, okay. So, uh, like I said, every month that I'm on, we kind of look at it. So, just looking ahead a little bit, I've been tracking how many IP addresses are um, responsible for doing the scanning activity. And as we progress, uh, through the different months uh, that we've been tracking this, we can actually see the activity is going down and down, sometimes staying the same and going down. Um, and there's not really a good way to take care of this botnet uh, for everyone uh, or this threat, this worm uh, for everyone, but being able to track how many victims there still are is kind of a good understanding of is this threat still expanding or is it kind of um, contracting. In a way, it's kind of similar to you know the peak that we might be experiencing or different countries are experiencing with the with the coronavirus. Um, so uh, here we have activity for um, uh, February uh, of this year, and then uh, today the activity, as you could see in March, is um, uh, is still uh, decreasing. So now I want to take us back to the story of something I discovered while looking at our. Uh, at our tarpit logs that I thought was um, uh, interesting, uh, so I want to share with you, and it turned out to be something from uh, back in the day once I looked at it a little bit closer. Uh, so we have a, um, a, basically a tarpit, and what it does is it just sees what kind of packets get sent uh, its way. And I noticed something strange. Um, on port 9988 TCP, we had IP addresses from different countries um, all sending us um, exe files on that port, just an exe file on that port, which I thought was a little bit strange because um, there is nothing that I'm aware of uh, that I know that listens on port 9988 TCP expecting to get a, um, an exe file and execute it. So this immediately caught my attention, and I wanted to dig into it a little bit further and understand uh, what it was all about. So looking at this port in general, uh, 9988 TCP in the tarpit, and then concentrating on the last five years' worth of activity and seeing what this activity is, we could see that this activity actually goes all the way back to 
um, sometime in 2015. Uh, so this activity has been going on for a while. Um, this is going back five years for us, so uh, it's just as far back as the data goes, but uh, it's likely that this was happening even before. And if you look at the IP addresses that are causing this, you know they're kind of all over the place. There's no rhyme or reason. But if you look at one individual IP address, you'll see that it's not just activity on port 9988 TCP. There's also activity on port 445 TCP that is like a precursor activity. There's something that happens a few seconds before the IP will send you a packet, which I think is an exploit attempt on port 445 TCP. And then a little while later, a few seconds later, it'll actually send you this exe file on port 9988 TCP. Uh, so that actually helps to understand the story a little bit more. So looking at that SMB packet a little bit more, uh, you could see that sandwiched between the A's and the B's in that packet is actually some kind of shell code that probably is the one that's responsible for opening up this connection on 988 TCP. Um, so looking at the TARPID and looking at all of the EXE files that we've ever received, uh, taking the MD5 SHA hash uh, of the EXE files, you could see that all for every IP address pretty much um, the hash is different. So it's a different hash uh, every single time, which indicates that whatever the CXE is, it's some sort of a polymorphic CXE. It's a, basically a worm that's changing uh, for each installation. It's probably there to make sure it doesn't get detected. So uh, I was going to go ahead and reverse engineer this exploit and reverse engineer these CXE files. Uh, but then I said, uh, wait, before I do that, let's reach out to some people who maybe have a little bit more experience with it. And actually, um, our friends at AlienVault Lab uh, Chris Dorman and Tom Hagel uh, helped me figure this out a little bit more. So uh, with some uh, Googling around and in general just some background knowledge, they pointed me at this threat from uh, I guess 2006 or something, which uh, for the internet is like we'll say back in the day, uh, which is you know quite some time ago, like 14 years or more, uh, definitely when I was still starting out in computer security. And uh, basically this threat, uh, if you read the descriptions of it, it's a polymorphic worm like we were able to see, and it spreads uh, through uh, a vulnerability in uh, SMP MS0604-040. So uh, back then, I think the CVE system hadn't been as widely adopted as, as it is now. So I remember Microsoft was mostly going by um, their bulletins. Um, in any case, what was this threat? So this was uh, actually a really interesting story. Apparently, uh, there was this uh, person in Estonia who got into a car accident and his um, I guess car insurance company you know, didn't pay out the claim the way he felt like it should be paid out. And he created this worm to spread on port 445 TCP and send this back door. And all it did really, besides spreading and worming through the internet, um, was to create a DDoS attack against websites in Estonia, specifically the website of this insurance company. Um, so this person was actually you know, prosecuted, discovered and prosecuted and actually served, I think maybe two to three years, I, I don't remember exactly, uh, in jail and was also ordered to pay um, restitution uh, amounting to more than half a million dollars, I believe, um, 
uh, in U.S. dollars for the ISP and for that, I, I think, the insurance company as well. Um, so really interesting story. Uh, what was interesting about it for me is that, you know, we still see this activity happening on poor 445 TCP. This was something, you know, that was a dispute between this man and this insurance company all the way back in like 2006. And all these years later, you know, like 14 years later, there's still remnants. It's not a lot, but a few PCs here and there uh, scanning on port 445 TCP, looking for this really, really old and ancient vulnerability and trying to infect devices with this worm still to attack, uh, you know, this Estonian insurance company. Um, so just a really interesting story uh, there. All right. So now uh, we'll go to the top 10 most sources probing report. And this is the report that helps us to understand if there's any uh, botnet or worm-like activity. Um, and again, looking at the top 10 most sources probing in this week's report, all of the ports we've generally covered, they um, are pretty much the same ports that we see week in and week out. So what I decided to do is I decided to look at the next 10 or the, so to speak, the top 20 uh, most sources probing and see if there's something interesting there. So um, looking at it, I, I could see that this port, just because of its length, um, really spoke to me, which was port 52869, uh, so 52869 TCP. Um, this is a port we've actually covered many times on ThreatTrack back in 2018 when it first became um, uh, I think popular, and I think it's been covered um, widely in general. Um, so I'll explain to you kind of what we're seeing today. So this next chart here shows us um, basically the scan probe volume on port um, 52,869. And um, you could see that the top part of the chart this is how much scanning in general is happening on this board. And the bottom part of the chart you could see is the number of IP addresses doing the scanning. So um, the top chart I think is millions of connections per hour. So you could see that more recently uh, is about 20 million or so connections per hour in general. And then uh, the bottom chart is in thousands. So um, you could see that probably since November of last year till today, uh, we have you know between looks like three and five thousand devices at any given point in time scanning. So usually what I do with these devices is I take them and I try to figure out well where are they, what are they doing, where are they out of, and if you do that and you map it on a map, um, you know these are about five and a half thousand IP addresses that we're scanning in the last six hours. Um, just taking them and mapping them out, you see something interesting. You see that the devices, especially there uh, seems to be many in China um, and um, other parts of um, Southeast Asia there. Um, you know, there seems to be quite a bit of devices doing the scanning. There's also a heavy concentration and it looks like Brazil and other parts of um, uh, South America, definitely Europe. And I would say a pretty heavy concentration than what we normally see um, in the U.S. as well. Um, of scanning, and some also in uh, in Mexico. Uh, so this is a pretty unique uh, scanning profile. Uh, if you compare it to other botnets, you know they look a little bit different. You might see more of a hotspot in India or something like that. So whatever this botnet is um, that's scanning on this specific port, uh, the devices do seem to be global, but they do seem to have hotspots as well. I mean, you know, they're not like everywhere necessarily. Uh, so. Uh, looking at the sport or thinking about the sport, uh, I wanted to explore what do we see in general in our honeypot uh, looking at the last 60 days. And you could see there's not many events. Um, and if you look at the type of 
uh, packets we get. Um, it's kind of all over the place. You know, most of it is HTTP, which is related to a well-known um, uh, vulnerability that I'll discuss next. Uh, but a lot of it is just general scanning uh, or other unknown protocols um, that are out there. So people just trying to scan and see what is available on the sport. So looking at it in the last five years and understanding what is this vulnerability that we covered in 2018, uh, it's actually a vulnerability from 2014. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's a vulnerability that targets these um, real tech devices. Um, I forget, I think they're like uh, maybe ca uh, cameras or routers. Um, basically, they have um, um, a UPnP interface that works over the SOAP messaging protocol. And somewhere in that communication, uh, there's an opportunity to inject a command. Um, so if you search the honeypot logs for the, this, the presence of this one term, um, you could see that there's actually over the last five years, we've seen two different ports being targeted for this vulnerability. Uh, one uh, in the port that we're describing, which is 52,869, and the second is port 49,152. Both of these ports are kind of like out there, you know, they're like these high ephemeral looking ports, but happen to be, I guess, the management ports uh, where the service runs for these types of devices. And you could see, you know, we have activity going back to at least 2016, um, uh, you know, mid or early 2016, all the way through now. And again, it's not a ton of activity, it's a few devices here or there, but it does show you the length and scope of how long people have known about this. So even though it was generally written about in 2018, uh, you could see people were really interested about it in 2016. You could see this vulnerability in general has been known about since at least 2014. Uh, so what are some of the other interesting parameters about this, uh, but now just looking at um, the URI patterns of where um, um, the uh, malicious activity is trying to reach out on the device, you could see there's different URIs that are being used. And they've been being used since different points in time, uh, but even till this day. Um, and then the user agent string is another thing that usually gets transmitted uh, when you're, uh, you know, communicating over the HTTP protocol. And you could see that a lot of the devices that are doing the scanning, they have the hello world user agent string. But one of the user agent strings that um, kind of spoke to me was Katashi. And it's, uh, I believe it's a Japanese word that might mean digit, but um, Japanese words in, in the botnet world actually are meaningful because uh, Mirai, which is a very well-known uh, DVR botnet uh, or IoT botnet is also a Japanese word. Uh, word. So it, it made me think, is there a botnet named Katashi? And I found this article um, back from 2018 as well that actually references a, uh, a botnet made up of 18,000 devices. Uh, this is the Katashi botnet, which is a Mirai variant. Um, and you could see traces of it here um, in July of 2018 in, within our um, uh, honeypot here. Uh, but you could see that it's basically not, um, you know, it wasn't maybe as big and at least measurably in the honeypot as maybe it was reported back then. Um, at the same time, some of these things like the hello world variant of it uh, is still kind of going strong to this day. Um, and kind of we do see in, in the honeypot a little bit more frequently. So I hope you enjoyed these stories uh, that basically describe uh, the state of the internet weather today. 
The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.